And then Satan comes to God one day and he says, you know what, you've put a hedge around Job. That's what you've done. He likes you for your stuff. But if you attack his wealth, if you attack his possessions, it'll all come out that he's a fraud. And so that's what happens. But, but what is the response of Job? Does he, does he curse God in that moment? No, he worships God in his grieving. That's what he does. And then he actually has this terrible illness come upon him, and then he has his own wife turn against him and begin to use the words of the accuser Satan himself, saying, why don't you just turn and curse God? Now his wife isn't even on his team. And yet he doesn't charge God with wrong. Job is sort of this amazing, upstanding, godly guy. And if all you did was read through the end of chapter 2 of Job, which is kind of where, honestly, most of us stop when we read Job. But if we were to stop at the end of chapter 2, Job would seem like this very two-dimensional character, kind of like this stoic hero, someone who you would expect to find in some stained glass window in a cathedral. Not someone that you would feel like you relate to. Not a, not a real human like us who has emotions and experiences different kinds of things or maybe would respond in a different sort of way. Guys, we are about to enter into one of the most raw and honest passages in all of the Bible. I mean, this is a passage where when you read it for the first time, you kind of are taken back a little bit and you're like, wow, is it actually in the Bible? You can actually talk this way? Job is, is asking a very sobering question here in chapter 3. He's asking, is it better? Is it better to die and to never have lived than to face the thing that we fear the most becoming our new reality? Would that be better? Christopher Ashe refers to this passage and he calls it not armchair theology, but wheelchair theology. See, theology is just something that we do. We, when we think about God and we seek to understand who God is and how he's revealed himself and therefore in light of him, who we are and how we relate to him and how we should view the world and live in the world. And most of us, we exercise that in the form of armchair theology, which is, which is a wonderful thing. You know, we sit around living rooms, you know, around tables and we drink coffee and we open our Bibles and we talk about God. That's what he means by armchair theology. But wheelchair theology is seeking to understand God and yourself and what's happening around you because your life depends on it. Maybe you've been there and you're trying to make sense of God and this world and what you're experiencing. That's, that's wheelchair theology. Well, we see here at the end of chapter two that, that Job's friends come and they sit with him and they weep with him, and they grieve with him, and they sit there in silence for seven days. Seven days. No words, just silence. And chapter 3 opens up, and it's meant to kind of provide this sort of dramatic pause, because it says, after this, so seven days of silence. After this, Job opened his mouth. And we should be hanging on that phrase, just going, what is he going to say? Is he going to curse God like Satan said he would? Or is he going to curse God like his wife told him he should? 
Later on, you'll discover that Job's friends think he's probably going to open his mouth and confess some sort of sin for why is this is happening to him. Is he going to do that? What is he going to do? What will he say? Well, guys, we're about to hear the voice of suffering. This is what this is tonight. It's the voice of suffering. We, we have watched, if you will, in chapters 1 and 2, we have watched and seen with our own eyes the loneliness and the suffering of Job. But here in chapter 3, we now get to listen to his loneliness and his suffering. And it's in this voice that is suffering that we see what our voices of suffering long for. And that's rest. And the question is, can we even find it in the midst of suffering? Can we find sustaining rest? I'm just going to apologize to you note takers right now because this isn't sort of your classic three-point, beautiful little etched out sermon, okay? Uh, this is honestly the most difficult sermon I've ever prepared for in my life. Uh, I've never spent more time on a passage than this one. It's, uh, it's very difficult to process stuff like this. So what I want us to do is to walk through Job and to just sit in Job's voice of suffering. I want us to sit in it for a while. And I recognize that isn't very comfortable. That's not our greatest desire. If I would have promoted that this week, you would probably be at a Super Bowl party right now, right? Because I think most of us, we want to run from pain rather than deal with it. Uh, we live in a culture, I think, that promotes positive thinking and kind of putting on a good face. We want to fix things so that we could start smiling again and post those things on our social media or whatever. But I think Job tonight shows us that it's okay to not be okay. But after that, I want us to ask if rest can be had in the midst of not being okay. Our passage is very clearly broken down like this. You see in verses 1 through 10 a curse that Job gives. In verses 11 through 19, you see a lament that Job makes. In verses 20 through 26, we see this great question that he poses. And so I want us just to sit in this voice of suffering. So verse 1, he opens his mouth, and what does he say? What does he do? After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, and 
nor hide trouble from my eyes. So Job opens his mouth. We're wondering, will he curse God like Satan said he would? Will he curse God like his wife tried to persuade him? Will he confess his sin like his friends are hoping he's going to? No, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He, he doesn't curse God. He, he curses his own birth. It's really interesting here because Job doesn't speak to his friends. It doesn't even seem like Job's really speaking to God. Job's just kind of talking to himself, if you were. He is spiraling into what is categorized in Scripture as a cursed lament, and there's really only two of these in the entirety of Scripture that are are very obvious, and that is here and in the book of Jeremiah. And what I mean by that is there are laments throughout the entirety of Scripture. Uh, Most, a vast majority of some of the Psalms are laments. And in a lament, what you have is something horrific that's happened to people, God's people, and they cry out, why to God? Why is this happening? It's very sorrowful. But in the end of a classic lament, there's always some sort of clinging to some truth about God. There's always some hope offered at the end of this lament. But here we call it a curse lament because there seems to be absolutely no hope here. I mean, it's very sobering. Job isn't proclaiming that he's clinging to anything. He's not preaching anything to himself. So Job in these verses, he is wishing, if you will, that creation would just be undone. He's saying, I wish, I wish the light would be darkness. He keeps talking about darkness and gloom and night and, and all these various things. And we're meant to see that and we're meant to understand that by way of what we see in the creation account, if you will. Because what happens in the creation account, there's darkness over the face of the earth. But God, being a creator and bringing forth new creation, he brings forth light from darkness. That's just what God does. God always takes things that are dark and he, and he brings them into light. That's what's happened in our own salvation. We were people walking in darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of light is what his word says, okay? But here, Job is saying, on that day of my birth, it was light and I, and I wish that could be reversed. I wish it could have been darkness. Life is so painful that Job wishes the very roots of his existence had been recaptured by death and darkness, that he had never existed. He wished God would rewind the tape of creation and undo the part that led to his very existence. He wishes for it to be night. And we are meant, I think, to understand this night, this word night, in in the same way that we see it used in other parts of Scripture, like when the plague of darkness fell over Egypt at the time of the Exodus, that kind of night. Or when Judas came to Jesus and betrayed him, that kind of night. And even the gospel writer of John comments when that happened, when Judas betrayed Jesus, and it was night. See, Job, I think, here wishes his birth would have been like that kind of God-forsaken night. That's how deep his sorrow is. He even cries out for Leviathan, this sort of mythical sea monster of chaos. He's He's thought of in that day as this great enemy of the creator whose mission was to undo the order and beauty that God had made. He asked that he could somehow be summoned and and swallow up his very existence. And then he continues by describing his wish that his mother's womb would have been shut. That somehow he would never have come out. 
I mean, just think about that. We always consider conception and birth as like this sign of hope. That's how we often view that. So if you hear someone is expecting a baby, you rejoice, or at least you ought to. And the mother's womb in pregnancy is literally pregnant with hope. There is new life forming within her, and one day that that baby will be brought into this world. That's the description of hope in new life. I mean, even if you have these mixed feelings of anxiety or inconvenience, that, that's what that means. But see, Job's whole point is this. If only I had never been, that would be far better. I mean, just think about that. Think about that depth of sorrow for a moment. I mean, maybe you've been there. He'd rather have missed out on all of his kids' birthdays. Every little savoring joy in his life, every, every wonderful meal that he's had, every wonderful moment with his wife or, or beautiful thing that he has seen, he says, I would rather go without all of that and never have existed. I mean, basically, if you were to walk up to Job and say, hey, Job, what are you looking forward to in life? He wouldn't bat an eye and he would just say to you, nothing. Have you ever been there? Or maybe close to that kind of place? Thinking, now that I'm experiencing this, now that this thing is gone from my life, there is no future for me. I have nothing to look forward to now. That is the voice of suffering. But then he goes on in verse 11 with this lament, and he says, Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not? as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now Job begins to lament, asking why. Basically says, okay, if I had to be born then why did I have to stay alive? Why could I not have died at birth? I mean, the imagery here is very loud. It's very vivid. He describes the process of coming from the womb to the knee to the breast, which is honestly meant for us to to understand like a, a, a little baby sitting on his or her father's knee or mother's knee, which is meant to give you imagery of support and care. And then from that movement to the mother's breast, which is meant for you to understand and see this imagery of being nurtured to health. I mean, normally this is a beautiful picture of a young life loved and nurtured, but for Job, it was just an awful, terrifying, disastrous thought. All it did in his mind was launch him into a life that would end with unbearable misery. And so he continues by stating that he longs to be in the grave. In the grave with whom? He points out 
princes and rulers and all these people. And I think we're meant to understand he's describing those people in their wealth and their riches. Because those are the kind of people that oppress the lowly, the outcast, and the marginalized. He lists off here people like prisoners and slaves and people who are weary. I mean, just remember what happened to him. The Chaldeans and the Sabians came and, and pummeled and, and stole from him and took things that he viewed as his own. He was oppressed by some people, and so now you have Job, who was considered a great man, now identifying himself with the small and the weak, the prisoners, the weary, and the slaves. So what is Job saying? He's saying, I long to be in Sheol, which is the place of death. He's saying, I long to be in that place with those kinds of people, the great oppressors and those who are oppressed. Why? Is that because he really wants to be with those people? No, that's not at all what he's trying to say. He wants to be with them in that place because he thinks that it's only in death that they will no longer be able to cause him any trouble. That he can finally be free from this. But then Job continues. Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not. And dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? Whom God has hedged in. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. And my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job turns his attention outward again. And he questions why life would be given to anyone who has to experience misery who has to experience their greatest fear, that, that thing that we're trying to identify at the beginning of, of this time, that, that these people, why would they have to experience life if they have to experience their greatest fear becoming their new reality? And he's still questioning, why, why am I still here? If you will, Job sort of feels like a man on a, on a life support machine, who is just longing for someone to turn off the power. I mean, he goes even further and deeper into places that maybe you've never gone to before, but he is describing himself and these people, people that he sees suffering on the earth as digging for death like you would a buried treasure, hoping to find it. I mean, talk about a reversal of what we often experience and see at a funeral. I mean, even if somebody in our lives has experienced a lot of pain or they've lived to a very long age and, and they know Jesus, right? We go to that funeral and I think objectively we're like, it's good that they're not suffering anymore. But still, you never go to a funeral saying, oh, I'm so glad they're gone. You just don't do that. Death is not something that we, we usually dig for and cling to. And so here he's describing his own state as being in a place where he just longs to find death because that's where he thinks he'll find rest. 
he describes himself here ironically as being hedged in again. Which if you remember in the first couple of chapters, that's Satan's big accusation that God has hedged in him with blessing. He says, if you remove that hedge, you'll see his true colors. And that was removed. And we begin to see that that God was right in his assessment, if you will, of Job. But now he is feeling hedged in, if you will, not by God's blessing, but by maybe something like barbed wire. And so what, what felt like a blessing in chapter one now feels more like a curse. So he continues on and he describes his situation with sighing, with groaning, which is really a strong word. This, this word is really more like the word shrieks. It's trying to describe for us a place that people might find themselves when, when something devastating or some tragedy has fallen upon them, sort, some sort of terrorism or something where they've lost something and you hear they're crying in the streets because of the agony they're experiencing. That's what these words are meant for us to understand. I know this isn't easy to listen to. I know it's not easy to read or to process or to sit in. I know this isn't pleasant, but this is the voice of suffering. Wishing he had never been born. And if he had had to been born, lamenting why he had to live, then questioning why anyone would have to endure such misery and would exist and experience their greatest fear coming upon them. Wouldn't it be better to have never lived? Job is emptied of hope. Job carries the voice of suffering. And do you notice that God doesn't muzzle him? God doesn't tell him to be quiet. C.S. Lewis lost his wife in death, and he grieved greatly over that. He even wrote about it in a book called A Grief Observed. And in that book, Lewis asked the question in his grief, where is God? Where is God? And he answered that question. And and he talks about how in our lives, when we are happy, when we're really happy, when life is kind of going the way that we want it to go, we don't really have a sense that we need God. He says, but if we remember God, we we turn to him with gratitude and with praise. And it's in those moments, he describes, that we feel as if God welcomes us with open arms. But then in processing this grief, this losing of his wife, he says, but if you go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? And he says, it's like I go to God. And it's like a door is being slammed in my face. And I can hear deadbolt after deadbolt being locked from the inside. And once all those deadbolts are locked, all I can hear is silence. Silence. He says, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. He says, there are no lights in the windows anymore. It it might be an empty house. I question, was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. See, Lewis carries the voice of suffering. 
He, he sat in the silence of his grief, longing for rest and for peace. And so now we leave Job at the end of chapter 3, and, and he seems and he feels terribly alone. We, we leave him able only to look back on his life with bitter regrets that he'd ever even lived, covered in deep darkness. And we wonder, is there anything that could be said to Job? Is there any hope for this man that carries the voice of suffering? Well, I think it's important here to look at this sort of paralleling structure thing you have going on. Because what does it say in verse 13? Job says, for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. And then in verse 26, he says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job, this voice of suffering, he's longing, he's yearning. Verse 24 speaks of him sighing and groaning for rest. He just wants rest. Ironically, in verse 26, it says Job longs for silence, and yet he just sat in silence for seven days. But yet he longs for silence. In his suffering and unrest, he is longing for rest, quiet, and peace. He longs for it, and it begs us to wonder, can it be had? I think we all kind of resonate, if you will, with this longing as we might walk through hard times, deep darkness or suffering. We would, we would all say in those times that that internally we kind of just feel that way. We are longing for peace. We are longing for rest in the midst of our suffering. I mean, some of us might look for rest in the secure relationship with a lover. Maybe that's your spouse. Maybe that's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or maybe you're not in a relationship, and in the midst of hard times, you find yourself searching for that kind of relationship, whether that is for physical reasons or emotional reasons. I mean, some of us might look for rest in security of our financial standing. That somehow that eases our mind, it eases our pain that I'm going to be all right. I can afford things or, or whatnot. Maybe some of us look for rest in our friendships or the amount of our friendships because at the end of the day, we at least can, can have a sense of peace because people like us or something. Maybe we look for rest in our work. And when you enter into a dark season of life, you become a workaholic, essentially, so that you can distract yourself from the pain that you're experiencing. Maybe we look for rest in our own health or in the health of others around us that we love. Or in our own morality, thinking, well, at least I'm a good person. Or maybe you look for rest in substances to abuse. Maybe that's prescription medication or recreational drugs or alcohol abuse. Maybe you look for rest in entertainment or food. Or some of us may look for rest in a place like Job. Death. And you might be in a place of deep darkness where you would consider the options of a suicide or maybe even assisted suicide. But do these things really provide rest? I mean, maybe in short moments, 
we could feel like they are, but is that, is that true rest? Is that our greatest hope? Can we find sustaining rest when our greatest fear in life becomes our reality? Fast forward from the life of Job centuries later, and you'll hear the voice of Jesus cry out to anyone who would come to him, that if we come to him, we can find rest for our souls. Did you see what Job said in verse 17? He said, there the wicked cease from troubling, referring to death. And there is, and there the weary are at rest. Job is saying the only place the weary can find rest is in death. But here, centuries later, we have the God-man, the Savior of the world, Jesus himself, crying out that if you are weary, you can come to him. The invitation is there to come to him and to find rest rest. He calls you to cease from working and to stop digging and to come and to rest in him. You see, it is Job's loneliness in his suffering that foreshadows a greater loneliness experienced in the life of Jesus. You see, Job's darkness anticipates a deeper darkness that was experienced on that dreadful day that we now call Good Friday. Jesus that day found himself in deep darkness, hanging on a cross at midday. See, what Job cried out for in his life, that darkness would come at noon, that the light would be turned into darkness. Jesus literally experienced that darkness at noon, deeper than the darkness of Night, deeper even than Job's darkness or any darkness that you have found yourself in or deeper than any darkness that you will ever find yourself in. And it's from the lips of our Savior, Jesus himself, that came the voice of suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job may have felt forsaken by God, just like C.S. Lewis felt forsaken by God. Just like he felt that door being slammed shut in his face. But God has not abandoned Job, nor has he abandoned C.S. Lewis. And God, if you're a Christian, God has not abandoned you in your suffering. Because we see uh, that dark day that Jesus experienced, he turned his back on Jesus in that great moment. You see, Jesus never deserved to carry a voice of suffering because he wasn't just blameless like Job. He was utterly perfect. But in that moment of deepest darkness, he belted out the voice of suffering so that in your voice of suffering and in your longing for quiet and your longing for peace and your longing for rest, you could come to him and you could have him and you could know deep in your bones that He is with you and he will carry you through this. So you can find true rest because Jesus experienced the greatest unrest. You don't have to lament your birth because Jesus was born into this world for your redemption. You don't have to long for death because Jesus entered into your death. He entered into the greatest fear that we could ever have, the abandonment of God so that in your suffering you can come to him and you could have him 
And you can know that he will carry you into a new creation where you will never hear a voice of suffering again. About seven years ago, I was leading worship. And in the front row was a woman who I knew well. And I was very aware that she had just had a miscarriage that week. And this is a woman who had longed for a child. And like any woman or family who longs for a child, when you receive news that you're pregnant, there is so much joy that fills you. This woman was was very far along in her pregnancy. And she was not in the place that day to just joyfully sing. She was not okay. She wasn't in the place just to put on a good face and sing some trite chorus that at least that's how it would feel. And when we were singing this very joyful song, and I remember like feeling like it almost felt wrong to sing it. But we got to the second verse of the song and the lyrics read, when I stand in that place, free at last, meeting face to face, I am yours, Jesus, you are mine. Endless joy, perfect peace, earthly pain finally will cease. Celebrate that Jesus is alive. And I looked at her as I fought to sing those words, and there were tears just streaming down her cheeks. And I could see the pain just like pouring out of her. And the words of Job 3.24 rang true. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. You see, she was, she was trying to sing, but she, she couldn't sing. But yet in that moment, I could just see the hope that was coming in her weeping. In that moment, I, I found myself not singing for myself. I found myself singing for my sister who couldn't open her mouth in that moment because of all the sorrow she was experiencing. She couldn't open her mouth and sing because she was finding hope in this future reality that awaits her. She wasn't singing not because she didn't want to sing, but because she was finding her rest in God. That woman was carrying the voice of suffering, yet she was finding rest in her God in her suffering. See, see, you can try to find rest in many things, but, but those will only medicate you for a time. You can, you can find, though, a forever kind of rest in your suffering in Jesus, who is the true and the better Job. So like we asked, what is it that you fear the most? What is it that if, if it were to become your new reality, that, that it would seem that life just wasn't worth living anymore? Well, on that most awful day, that most fearful day, that deep darkness happened to Jesus and he entered 
into the voice of suffering. And he overcame it. So that now when we carry the voice of suffering and maybe even get to the place where we, like Job, think that death is the only place that we can find rest, we can hear the words of invitation from Jesus and say, come to me. I am yours and you are mine. And I will carry you through this. I want to end a little differently than, than we ever do. 